Hi, welcome to Just Thinking Out Loud. My name is Desiree. I'm starting off on a cherry note, but it's going to end pretty depressingly because this is part two of our journey into the Gulag Archipelago, a three volume account of the Soviet Union under Stalin rule from 1918 to 1956, written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. In the last video, we went through the first six chapters of part one. Remember, there are seven parts. This video completes part one, and then it does part two, chapters one to four. As a reminder, the Gulag Archipelago refers to all the different labor camps that existed around Russia. I'll show those maps again. And we've gone through the arrest period where everybody was asking what are they being arrested for, but everyone was also silent. And we went through the interrogation, some of the torch that they used. We also looked at the blue caps and particularly discussed the morality and the line of good and evil being drawn in the heart of every man. And then we talked about amnesty. That's where we ended, where people were falsely believing that perhaps there could be amnesty after the end of World War II. Oh my God, what am I doing? In this video, I'm going to go through all the chapters, as I've mentioned, which finished part one, and then chapters one to four of part two. I'm going to give a summary of each and I do intersperse it with some of my comments. And then I give my overall comments at the end. Let's go. Important to note that this was after a communist revolution that occurred in 1917 to 1918 and it ended up in labor camps. If you haven't watched part one, I recommend going to watch it and getting oriented with what's happening. I also have started publishing my more detailed notes for my donators. So if you go and donate at justthinkingoutloud.tv slash donate, then you can see those notes such as quotes and my comments as I'm going through the book. It's really important to remember that this is a real life accounting and it's not a novel. Part one is titled The Prison Industry. We've gone through the first six chapters of that. Chapter seven is called In the Engine Room. I'm not sure why it's called In the Engine Room. I think it might mean that this is the motor behind the scenes because the next few chapters talk about the development of the law. This chapter talks about the birth of law basically in the Soviet Union and it starts with the corruption of judges. How judges took pride in not referencing Article 51 of the Criminal Code so that prisoners could possibly get reduced sentences and boasted about giving prisoners 25 years instead of 10 years. He talks about these judges describing these things just as people having a conversation totally removed from the fact that they were sending people to prison for years upon years for things non-consequential. The courts belong to the organs of the state. And there's a particular case where a Soviet Union citizen had just come back from the United States and then he made some positive comments about roads in the US. That's all he said, but they sent the case back for investigation in order to come up with some real evidence against the Soviet Union. He also mentions that people have read his book A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which describes prison conditions and that there's a pretense of reform because the public is aware of this book, but it's not true. And then he specifies his question, which comes first, the chicken or the egg, the people or the system. And he says that you shouldn't fare the judge, but you should fare the law. Chapter eight is called the law as a child. And this is about extrajudicial judgments. Public trials are no longer public, but they become 
private and then he talks a lot about people shot by the Cheka and that's without trial bypassing the courts. He mentions that 8,389 people are shot but the numbers aren't quite clear and then he says that after November 1917 the courts began to act on their own. There were three kinds of courts, the people's courts, the circuit courts and the revolutionary tribunals or the rev tribunals. There's an interesting case of peasants revolting and they're not supposed to be revolting because they're the people who are being fought for with the revolution. They were accused as being part of the Kulak. He says that from 1918 on peasant revolts were already being called Kulak revolts for how could the peasants revolt against the workers and peasants power? How then could one explain that in every instance it was not just three peasant huts that revolted that revolted but the whole village? Why did the masses of poor peasants not kill the insurgent Kulaks with those same pitchforks and axes instead of marching with them against the machine guns? Latsis claims the Kulaks compelled the rest of the peasants to take part in these revolts by promises, slander, and threats. But what could have been more laden with promises than the slogans of the committees of the poor? And what could have been more loaded with threats than the machine guns of the special purpose detachments? This actually reminded me of the recent case with Amy Cooper, the dog walker in the park, and Mr. Cooper, I can't remember his first name, the bird watcher, and how the mob still wants to harass Amy Cooper some more even though he thinks that it's okay now. It's not the same case but it shows how the power of the idea goes beyond the supposed people that this idea is supposed to be helping and what they want. There was a man who was sentenced to be shot for refusing to fight due to his religion and he ended up being sentenced to 15 years even though the prosecutor was on his side and that there was a protest in the court. Only the presiding judge wanted it and it was stated that his case should have been tried in an ordinary court but it didn't really matter what people thought. It was just the system that was important. Solzhenitsyn also had prosecution speeches, particularly of someone called Krylenko, because stenographic records weren't being kept. And he talks about Krylenko praising the fact that there is no separation of powers between the legislative and the executive power as it is in the West, because everything can be done expediently, quickly. A few specific cases are detailed. One is where the editor of a newspaper is accused of attempting to influence people's minds because he published an article about the Germans helping Lenin. Another case had to do with guilt by association. And then another case had to do with actual criminals having their crimes ignored because it could just be ascribed to a given social system. So it didn't matter what the person did, it mattered how the system operated. The system was responsible for a person's bad behavior and that is the extreme of, this is the extreme so I'm not saying that this is what people argue for but it's the extreme of people saying that it's your environment that should be blamed and you shouldn't have any personal responsibility. And then of course we know that that can also go to the other extreme where people only want to focus on personal responsibility. Although I personally think that's a better path to actually improve someone's life. Another case mentions a church, and this is particularly important. First of all, it's interesting that the word the patriarch of the church is used because we just never hear those terms anymore. The state is trying to take over church property, and the church is asking people not to take part in a census. And then the patriarch of the church had also been taking time to expose what was happening to people, and then they were even given donations later. The state wanted all the church's treasures, and they wouldn't freely give them up because they were sacred and that comes up again in a bit. Another case is about scholars and intellectuals because they wanted them sentenced to death because they would even consider alternative systems that could possibly arise after the fall of the Soviet regime. That was considered a counter-revolutionary act. And the cases weren't written down in detail because there was no need for stenographers. 
stenographers. Chapter nine is titled, The Law Becomes a Man. The chapter before that one was about the development of the law and this one is about how the law matures. So Solzhenitsyn continues giving us certain cases. Solzhenitsyn focuses on engineers called spetses, which stands for specialized, and they were being blamed for shortages such as heat, coal, firewood, petroleum, or engineering issues even when they were forced to do certain things when they didn't think that that was the right way to plan for it and then they got in trouble for doing it the way that would wreck the system and they were called wreckers that was a term for them there was one engineer who had worked on a water system for 30 years and he refused to let guards near the supply because he was afraid they would break the pipes he just wanted to do his job but the communists had to be put in charge of everything and so they would supervise engineers who had been doing their jobs for like 30 years and tell them what to do they would mess around with assignments given they kept trying to sabotage the work of these engineers in the end it didn't matter after what the engineers did, they were called records anyway. Officers from the regime would reassign workers, interfere with maintenance, and keep writing reports about engineers wrecking things. Again, there's this idea that the people involved don't know what's good for them because there's a particular engineer who's called Oldenburger. And a lot of the workers at the pumping stations say that they don't see the sabotage, but they're just accused of being infected with petty bourgeoisie psychology. So it's kind of like that self-hating idea. And similar to the peasants joining with the kulaks from before. This engineer in particular ended up committing suicide. We go back to the church again here because the church gets in trouble, not because they won't hand things over to the state, but because they go and talk to church members first and they want to give it as a gift. And the state wants the church to only consider things that it owns as belonging to the state already. So they could give all they want. They even after much argument, give up their sacred ritualistic objects, but that's not enough. The state wants the church to already consider that everything that exists belongs to the state. Solzhenitsyn states that this is the basis for starting trials against the clergy. There's a particular citation of Lenin saying that they wanted to extend the use of execution by shooting to be broad. This is one of Lenin's final directives before he dies. And that written sentiment of Lenin's of anything possibly be broadly categorized as counter-revolutionary in order to use the death sentence, that was the basis for Article 58 that was mentioned in the first video which caused almost everything to be seen as counter-revolutionary. Then we get to the trial of the social revolutionaries, which is really important because these were socialists and people who were already sort of on the side of the communists, kind of, but they also were accused of acts that they didn't actually do and made to look bad no matter what they did. So contingent intent about what they might do if they were being treated badly was treated as action. That means thinking of possibly doing something in the future as retaliation for something being done to you is considered a thought crime and is considered as severe as an actual counter-revolutionary act. Does that not sound similar to a lot of what we hear today about speech being the same as violence? Solzhenitsyn points out that while these 1922 trials foreshadow what then happens in 1937, 1945, and 1959, people are still behaving like people. They don't just go along, they're proud of their actions, and they don't bow. And Krylenko's unethical actions, such as tampering with witness evidence, is called out. Chapter 10 is called The Law Matures. We've seen the groundwork being laid for how trials will be conducted, 
such as witness evidence being tampered, stenographic records not being taken, only the prosecution and prosecution witnesses being able to be heard, for example, false evidence being applied against people, the whole thought meaning action. They started first exiling the intelligentsia and then executing them. An improved criminal code comes in 1926 that puts everything under Article 58. There's a trial of engineers where they have too many witnesses and only a few engineers, like 146 people, are supposed to somehow represent the views of all the engineers in the country. They detail wrecking crimes of engineers such as increasing production from 20% to 22% when workers were prepared to increase from 40 to 50%. Wrecking also included arguing about how to complete projects, doing unnecessary repairs, choosing the wrong material to save costs or reinforce foundations, only producing what they were capable of doing instead of following orders, and defendants were subjected to sleeplessness and punishment cells. The purpose of these trials are to silence the intelligentsia. And then we go to the Mensheviks, and the Mensheviks are also communists, but it doesn't matter. They also get put on trial just like the social revolutionaries. This is the emergence of show trials where people are handpicked by the prosecutors and told to play roles and say certain things and they were often just betrayed anyway and ended up being sent to jail even though they were trying to play that part. But it's clear that some of these people are living in fear. Sometimes it's that they're being corrupt and they want to get everybody else in trouble and they think that they will be spared. This section is really important because nothing matters. The evidence doesn't matter. You can only tell the party line and I hear people talk a lot about show trials and this is what they're talking about. It's pointed out that the trials take a shift to become more illegal from about 1934 and Solzhenitsyn explains that there are lots of communist party leaders who thought they wouldn't get in trouble and how they end up debating themselves and confessing in these show trials and they seem so big when they were sentencing everyone else but when they're in the hot seat they're pretty small the lack of being able to have an individual party view even if you are from the party the communist party is very much highlighted here there's a particular fiery man named Vlasov who is brought up in these cases. He's trying to do a good job for people in his community. So he's charged with, because a sale of flour had been forbidden, initiating bread lines, having an inadequate minimum assortment of merchandise, and procuring a surplus of salt. Vlasov doesn't stand down and he accuses the prosecutor of engaging in wrecking since there had been a prohibition on selling flour and baking rye bread. There's a nice quote where he says, I consider you not a court, but actors pretended to be a court in a stage farce where roles have already been written for you. You are engaged in a repulsive provocation on the part of the NKVD. You are going to sentence me to be shot no matter what I say. I believe one thing only. The time will come when you will be here in my place. At the end of this case, the crowd does not applaud and the people want to free the defendants, but there were gun barrels aimed at them. Second Amendment. And this is why they don't continue with public trials in the future. Chapter 11 is called the Supreme Measure. This refers to the death sentence or capital punishment or being shot by execution. Solzhenitsyn compares the fact that under communist rule, there was much more use of capital punishment as compared to before then, the centuries before then. People were shot, old barges were sunk, collective farmers who took extra hay for their cows instead of giving it to the collective were shot. And it's difficult to know the actual numbers because there were no precise official records being kept. 
on the legal system. There are various numbers mentioned. He mentions 28,000 per month being executed, 480,000 thieves being shot, and 1.7 million being shot by January 1939. But it's all just speculation. Here is very morbid. There's a description of death cells and what it's like waiting to die when you don't know after you've been sentenced how long it's going to take for you to be taken out. There's a case of someone being in a death cell for up to a year. You don't get medical attention when you're waiting to be executed. Prisoners are crammed together, they're hungry, they're cold. And when they take forever to leave, sometimes they can't walk afterwards. There's one man called Strakovich who becomes so bored, he starts writing scientific papers. And that's how he ends up having his death sentence commuted to 15 years, and he later works on a turbojet engine for the USSR. Chapter 12 is called the Tiorzak, that refers to prison confinement. This chapter is all about jails. Solzhenitsyn uses an analogy of the jail conditions being like a parabola with the lowest point being in 1917 when the revolutions happened so the conditions were really bad and then they improved over time mostly this is interesting because the jailers like the officers would make friends with the prisoners they would start to see them as human and treat them properly and then they worsen again over time and the atmosphere of the times as well influence what the prison system is like political prisoners in particular used to be given rights such as unrestricted walks special political rations such as half a pack of cigarettes per day, purchases from the market, being able to be outside, being able to get visits from relatives, and pregnant women being able to go into exile to have birth. But then conditions worsened in the 20s and the 30s. Hunger strikes, which were a really big tool for political prisoners in particular, are completely ineffective. Nobody cares anymore. Prisoners end up being force-fed. There's this particular theme of people being closer to the Communist Party, socialists, thinking that everyone to the right of them were going to suffer while they would be spared and should suffer while they are spared, but then they themselves are not spared. And then the Trotskyites and the Communists, those even closer to the Communist Party, shunning the socialists. And then in the end, the Communists were treated worse. And the reason why is because they were supposed to be closer to the party line and so less of an individual. They had even less ability to think for themselves. The end of part one, the prison industry, ends with a description of the different prisons needing to be rehabilitated and describing how desperate people were in these conditions, but how much humanity and the desire to create came out of it. And so he asks the question, is this really so bad? Because this is also the point where the human soul is discovered. And he ends with an astronomer beginning to create and share desperation and who eventually gets moved to a different prison. He says that this astronomer saved himself only by thinking of the eternal and infinite, of the order of the universe and of its supreme spirit, of the stars, of their internal state, and what time and the passing of time really are. And so, Solzhenitsyn says that part two of the Gulag Archipelago begins, which describes the conflict between the soul and the bars. It's called Perpetual Motion. Chapter one is called The Ships of the Archipelago. And this just describes all the different ways prisoners were transported. It describes prisoners being transported in cars, horse carts, but also by foot. And then later on, he gets into steamships as well. One thing that's highlighted here is how 
the order of morality is reversed. Regular criminals such as thieves are the ones in charge and people get robbed from, stolen from. The thieves get the best positions. The thieves work with the jailers. And he mentions that when everyone becomes a criminal, you can't distinguish the criminals anymore. Of course, that reminds me of everyone calling everybody racist. And a lot of political actors were afraid of collective action against the thieves because they had been punished so much for any kind of collaboration outside of the party line. So a thief having a knife would be misbehavior, but a political prisoner having a knife was terrorism. The conditions described here are pretty gross. He talks about the futility of having personal items because it would just be taken away because everything belongs to everyone. He mentions a gang rape of a girl who was just sentenced. He mentions people drinking out of buckets to drink water and having to have the healthy people drink first and then the people with like tuberculosis drinking later. He also mentions people attempting to send letters to their families about where they might be moved because you never know where you're going by flushing letters down the toilet in the hope that it might stay dry and might land and someone might pick it up. Chapter two of part two is called The Ports of the Archipelago. This chapter is about transit prisons. It describes people not having proper containers for food, so getting food in their clothes, or there's one about food being sprayed out, so prisoners catch it in their mouths and fought over it. He talks about prisoners boasting about who had it worse. Again, the thieves are mentioned as working with specially selected prisoners called trustees, and the rule of morality being reversed about who's on top. He also mentions women coming to look for their husbands, not being able to find them. He also especially describes women being driven out of their minds by hastily written letters and then sometimes coming to look for their husbands because they can't communicate anymore. He describes really educated men, engineers, being made to carry firewood and I just had the thought that if they just allowed them to use their brains in a system that appreciated it, they could have come up with a much more efficient way to carry firewood. And I didn't actually realize that slavery occurred until it's explicitly mentioned in the book. Even though the next chapter is called The Slave Caravans, he particularly talks about women being sold as slaves for officers, etc. There's a difference between special assignment work and general assignment work. And most people who do general assignment work, that's like 80% of, of prisoners don't make it out. Chapter 3 of part 2 is called The Slave Caravans. This chapter mentions some prisoners being taken directly to camp rather than going through the transit prisons and there are caravans of red cattle cars, barges, and caravans on foot. Toljanitsin mentions the stripping of will that comes from nakedness and people feeling as if they have no power to say anything. Sometimes red trains would arrive and there was no camp and so a new camp would be started. He also describes transportation by rivers, via boat, barges, and steamships, and also old routes before the archipelago becomes really developed so people would row there. There's a description of prisoners standing side to side, urinating in glass jars that they pass along to the porthole. The only thing missing is physical chains. Like this reminded me of the Atlantic slave trade. This is just a mention before getting to general commentary. Thieves are there as usual, exploiting the situation and being allowed to exploit the situation. Chapter 4 
of part two is called From Island to Island. Here we get a description of special convoys where prisoners move solitarily and in freedom a bit even though they're not so they get to interact with their free people. This is something that Solzhenitsyn experiences after one year in the labor camps because he lies and says that he's a nuclear physicist when being asked to register in a prison. He forgets about it but then later is called to give a scientific report and he happened to have a report about the nuclear bomb from the United States. He happened to have had it for two nights and reported what he remembered and got accepted. And he talks about getting two hot meals per day, being able to sleep finally, and being able to have intellectual discussions and how sweet that is. He also says that even while he's briefly among the free people, while he's being transported, he feels like he has no free speech. He cannot actually say the truth and what he thinks, and he sees people's issues as being completely petty and minor. Solzhenitsyn also runs into a man that he had forced to carry his suitcase when he was just arrested but still felt like an officer and how that man had actually forgiven him and was pleased to see him. This chapter ends with a description of uppity young people and how they were on a different path from the old. These young people talk about God and Solzhenitsyn describes having written God off but not from his own mind but from everything that had been happening externally. Okay so that's the recap of all these chapters. So we see the progression of the law, just the corruption from everyone, the show trials are really important and just the morality, the turning of morality like with the thieves, the caravans, and all of this comes from people talking about the supposed desire for everyone to be equal, the supposed desire for good and how evil is allowed to reign at large basically. It's also important to note the collective versus the individual and how people weren't allowed to have individual thoughts especially people who thought that they would be okay. I forgot to mention there was one man who was writing stories in the west about how amazing Russia was and like believed in socialism, I think maybe communism, and he had actually gone to visit Russia and only seen the good parts. But then he was contacted and because he wouldn't toe the party line, he got sent to jail. And a lot of people even then were still like, oh, I'm with the party, but they were also sent, sent to jail. <laughs> because it wasn't it wasn't about that so some overarching comments that I had I thought that there were a lot of busybodies everywhere there were people like with the engineers and saying about how they were wreckers and writing up reports about what they were doing and just sabotage and sabotaging they're just like finding what they're looking for and I see this today in a lot of the culture wars where you have these thoughts about people that you can't really verify and <laughs> you're making people crazy crazy with all these accusations and in the end it doesn't really matter what people do or say they're gonna be whatever you want to call them for one of the engineer they fabricated reports and they wrote a newspaper story about moscow's foundations being intentionally washed away by the water system how absurd is that just to prove that someone is a wrecker who had been serving the water system for 30 years and who ended up killing himself because he was just trying to do his job. Another thing that stood out to me was the importance of things being sacred beyond the state and how the state just didn't like that the church would give them donations and didn't think it all just belonged to the state already. Something else is the human mind's ability to justify anything with logic after the fact because they came up with these show trials they just like made it happen and they already knew what they wanted in mind. I thought to myself whose world is this? Whose mental image is this? 
where corruption is rampant. People are sentenced to death as a given. There are oppressive prison conditions where they deliberately block light in the day to keep people in the dark and then have electric lights at night to keep people awake and they torture people and the, the thieves are in charge it just seems like like the projection of like a very twisted mind onto the world and other people joining in because they themselves are corrupt i also thought to myself or think to myself what would i do that scene with Vlasov, the engineer where at the end the crowd doesn't clap they know something is wrong and they even maybe want to free him but they don't because guns are pointed at them so everyone goes along like what would you do would you just kill yourself because that's what would happen if you tried to fix the situation and it's a little worrying for what's happening in the present because all of this takes a long time to play out so when i think about today what's happening today i think this is just the beginning i mean maybe it won't go near there but it, it starts with a thought it starts with all of this stuff something else that's mentioned is the need for allyship that term is used in uh in these chapters i, I can't remember exactly where you have to say the exact words you can't have an individual opinion i also think about power so i don't know if you've noticed it seems as if all institutions that already exist are being taken over by people with revolutionary thoughts. And the idea is that all interactions between people are about power. So if that's all you believe in, then you only see the way to fix things as having power. And that's why people go to established institutions to try and change it rather than create their own thing. This might seem unrelated, but I thought about that transgender person this is not about the actual whatever you want to think about it, but the fact that you would go to an established institution where people aren't into that and like beam down your idea rather than go and create something and have people be attracted to it. And it's all about power because all you see is power, power struggles and power games between people. Something else I realized was that a lot of people are afraid of talent and they want to exploit it. They have these scientists in the prisons and they use the death cells to manipulate them and they're all mad at the engineers and there's an obvious desire to put people down because they feel like they're smarter. There are some lines where they say, oh, you're really dumb just because you can do this. It doesn't mean you're in charge. And then it's just like kind of hypocritical to have labor camps when communism is all about people being exploited and trying to write that. So then you end up exploiting people for their labor. The final thing I want to note is that I could see as I was reading this why it's so easy to write this account off, the Gulag Archipelago. It feels like too much, like it was really hard to read <laughs> um, sometimes, not all the time. Solzhenitsyn is also very funny and so his humor really, really helps a lot as he's describing dark things. But even though I know from the present, I just saw that thing about China and I, I can't pronounce them, but that ethnic group, that I think they're Muslim or something, the Uyghurs, I can't pronounce their name, being treated badly in China. So like, you know, these things occur, like, you know, like there are slave markets, you know, all these horrible stuff happens, there's trafficking, but your mind just wants to be like, oh, it's just a story. Like, I definitely feel that urge because it's like too much. You want to just be like, this isn't real. 
this didn't happen, even though you have countless examples of humans behaving this way to each other. Those were my thoughts on the part two of this series on the Gulag Archipelago. As a reminder, the Gulag Archipelago is written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. It has three volumes, but seven parts, and we have gone through volume one. Now, we just finished it. We did all of part one. At the beginning of part two, we have gone through the development of corruption in Russia, describing people being arrested, people, their own internal corruption, influence what happens on the outside, the law and how it's being abused, and then the final actual results of this idea of central control over people and how it ends up with people in labor camps and the horrible reversal of morality that happens, the corruption inside the prisons, the horrible conditions, all of that good stuff. I almost forgot to end this video with a quote. This one is from the chapter on the ships of the archipelago and it's describing how thieves weren't treated as badly during interrogation because they weren't traitors to the motherland. So the chiefs, and I think he means the prison guards, would say, Oh, that's nothing. Even though you're a bandit and a murderer, you are not a traitor of the motherland. You are one of our own people. You will reform. There was no section 11 for organizations in the thieves' articles in the code. Organization was not forbidden the thieves. And why should it be? Let it help develop in them the feelings of collectivism that people in our society need so badly. I hope that was useful to you. There is more to come. I hope that it was worth the wait. If you like my content, subscribe. Also, you can donate at justthinkingoutloud.tv slash donate. I am putting some detailed notes from my readings there that might be useful for you or interesting to get some quotes, see some comments, understand a bit more, but not necessarily read the whole thing. I hope you can apply what's written here, which is history, it's not a story, to what you see happening in society today, because it's eerily the same, just with different substitutes for the same theme of power and fixing it for the oppressed. Thank you for watching. I hope you have a good day. I'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. Subscribe to the channel if you're new. Find out what happens next. You can also subscribe to the newsletter to get updates from me. I think that's, I think there isn't anything else I'm supposed to say here.